today. Uh, I want to contrast um, a particular idea that you get in chapter 7, the idea there of, you know, how do you describe this construct, this picture? It's a, one of human desire, the uh, person that's caught up in covetousness and desire. And I believe that's what Paul is describing throughout Romans 7. But I think what <clears throat> what's happening throughout 8, of course, is that he's giving us the alternative picture. But the particular difference uh, that he contrasts with desire, I think, is hope. And I'll make the case as we go through it. But let me read Romans eight twenty four to 25. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So the opposite of desire is hope, or the opposite of hope uh, is life in the law of desire. As Paul describes it in chapter 7, the I, and the I here, the Greek word, is just the word that we get our word ego from is the seat of a death-dealing anxiety. And the fear uh, of the I as the I is caught up in a life of death. Who will rescue me from this body of death? From this punishing orientation to the law. Sin became alive and I died. That's what Paul's describing. He didn't die physically, but he died in in the... struggle that he's picturing here it is a kind of living death and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so Paul is one of the walking dead it is not the fault of the law Paul says but of sin which creates then this misunderstanding, this perverse orientation to the law. Paul says it was not the law. It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting death, my death, through that which is good. That is, the result of this is going to be made clear because of the law. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. We can identify sin now, Paul says. The life in the law in chapter 7 is characterized then by this fear, by being out of control. This death-dealing fear arises with the split between, Paul describes it as the law of the mind and the I, or the ego. On one side, the ego rejects any prohibition. Uh, If you think here, you know, what does he mean? Well, he may mean the prohibition in the garden. He may mean the law that is given at Mount Sinai. He may mean the law that we all encounter in our conscience. He may mean all of those things. And on the other end, in the same instance, we encounter the law, then in in a sense we realize the fear, the danger. He says, for what I am doing, he says, I'm split. I don't understand for, I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. 
So he's describing this alienation within the self which splits the self against itself. Or to state it another way, the fallen self is constituted as a kind of split in which fear and anxiety and desire are the reign, uh, reigning like kind of unlife force. Uh, he describes it in 8.15 as a life of slavery to fear. Throughout chapter 7, there is a kind of, he uses a word, a Greek word, that is picturing a kind of spectral relation to the self. He's watching one self, a part of himself, from another part of himself. And this other part he calls the body or the flesh. So that his description of the ego or I is that it's split between these two things, the law of the mind and the law of the flesh. And so this I, this body of death, is constituted by frustration, by alienation, by fear. And of course, we would say in light of chapter 8, and even the way that Paul describes it in chapter 7, that this whole construct, this whole picture, is a kind of misrecognition. It's a misunderstanding of who we are due to deception. Uh, Sin, Paul has said, takes an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me. And through the deception, it killed me. But the killing, you understand, is a prolonged dying that constitutes life outside of Christ. It was sin, Paul says, not the truth, but a deception. So this dead eye, this living dead ego has been conceived. You know, think of James here when he talks about the way that sin drags us away, that desire drags us away. And he pictures it as a scene in which sin is conceived and it gives birth. And when the baby is born, we call the child death. And so Paul is picturing this kind of living death. The very nature of a deception is that truth is obscured. And what obscures the truth then is the lie. And so what Paul is picturing, I believe, throughout 7 is this lie, the ego. The I is a kind of detached, you know, floating free from the body. It's a misrecognition, a deception about the self. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So in Paul's description of this I or ego, it's the I is itself a kind of symptom of sin. And of course we know that's the case because in Galatians he's going to say that this I, this ego has been crucified, has been put to death. And so salvation is itself an undoing of this dynamic of sin that he's describing. And the salvation then uh, is an ending, we might say, to the dynamic of desire, the lure of desire. Um, So throughout chapter 7, he's picturing how the law is a kind of lure holding out fullness. You know, what is the mistaken understanding about the law? 
that in some way there is life to be found in the law. But instead of wholeness or completeness or life, the law just continually holds out this object cause of desire. And it ends then in this agonistic struggle that Paul pictures throughout 7. This desire working through a kind of split in the self is misdirected in it presumes the law contains wholeness it contains life and Paul says it's really a it's a work of death um, faith loves Korean dramas and uh, I try to watch them but in the Korean dramas uh, they're sort of they're sort of like many things we were talking on Friday you know that you can you can just it's uh, if you've ever watched the Roadrunner cartoons how Wiley Coyote, every cartoon, you know, he's going to be chasing uh, the Roadrunner. And the Acme equipment, you know, that he buys is so shoddy that it ends up falling on Wiley Coyote's head. That's sort of the way Korean dramas are. That there's always two lovers. And in some way, you know, they never quite get together. They pass on a bridge but they don't see each other or they write letters and the letters are lost and it's always oh they just missed each other you know and you just spend you know season after season watching these two people just miss each other uh, so it's kind of the adult version of Wiley Coyote I think just missed the roadrunner you know uh in scripture we have this you know we could tell the same story through the the story of the prodigal son it's actually about two boys who want to get their stuff they want to get their fulfillment the older boy goes out you know or rather the younger boy goes out and squanders it you know he gets the inheritance he gets the money he has a party and that's not that's not it just missed it you know the older boy who has the inheritance stays with his father. He envies the younger son. They both in some way, you know, whether you squander the money or you keep the money, you stay with the father, you leave the father, they both in some way feel like, oh, just missed it, didn't get it. It's sort of, you know, the idea is that we can picture all things as a kind of pursuit of this fullness of obtaining the thing, of arriving at love, of achieving success and wealth, but in fact it never satisfies. I think that's what Paul is really setting up in chapter 7. He's saying, here's life outside of Christ. Here's the way it's constituted. It is an all-embracing kind of story. And so the answer is not, oh, Jesus can fulfill our desire. In other words, the danger is that we'll read Christianity with the same construct as is there in chapter 7. But we need a whole new construct. It's not that, you know, with Jesus the lovers meet, or with Jesus the boys are happy with their inheritance. It's that they have to give up on that kind of imagining that life is in the law. That fulfillment is there. And so I think the key to the alternative is hope. Paul's resolution to the fear and the frustration of the I, of the ego, is life in the spirit. And the key to life in the spirit is this hope. Um, 
In this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen. And that's a key difference for Paul. Because throughout chapter 7 he's described a kind of seeing. You know, the kind of image of the self. The visual image of the self. He literally uses a word there. uh, To see. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Desire is based upon the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is the picture in Genesis. It's the uh, uh, picture in 1 John. If the object of hope is within sight, Paul says, then it ceases to be hope. We can't define it as hope. So hope by definition falls outside this static spectral relationship. As it reaches forward to that which does not appear for the eyes. You know, this is the difference between listening and seeing. We can take a picture of your all, it's frozen, it's static, and we can show people, you know, in 50 years, oh, that's a funny looking group of people. They, you know, uh, they dress funny, you know, whatever it is. In 50 years, we're all going to look funny, I guess. But that's just the way things go. Um, so a picture is static, it's frozen. And so too, this I, this ego, is static, frozen, an object that cannot, in a sense, be obtained. If we record, you know, a a period, the auditory is always dynamic. It unfolds through time and history. And that's the image that Paul is setting out in chapter 8 of Christ. How do we come to the image of Christ? Well, through the word of Christ. Christ is not an icon, not Christ is not an idol, but Christ comes to us in and through a dynamic unfolding word. Christ comes to us in history. And so too, our following Christ is not a static moment in time, but it's a dynamic process of walking as he walked. So where the law or the eye or the ego is split, and is split as it focuses on finding itself through a kind of spectral, visual self-relation. In Christ, we understand that we come to an image that is not seen. In psychoanalysis, and I'm sorry, I always refer to psychoanalysis. It just happens to be an area of study. But... This was Freud's great discovery, you know, that there's a split within the self. There is the conscious self, and there is the unconscious self, and the two are pitted against one another. Paul, or uh, Freud, I think Paul too, says the same thing. That in our unconscious, we do not know what we know consciously, and in our conscious self, we do not know what we know unconsciously. There are two realms. That's exactly what Paul's describing. The mind of the law and the law of the you know sin and death are pitted against one another about the same time that Sigmund Freud is writing we have a whole new literature that springs up Mary Shelley writes the book Frankenstein in which you know pieces of the human body are glued together or I don't know how he gets them together but uh, they're pieced together but he's sort of still fragmented. You know, he's kind of uncoordinated. Frankenstein's monster doesn't get around very good. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is written in that same period by Robert Louis Stevenson. 
And there you have, you know, the good and the bad. Mr. Hyde is the evil one who goes out. And there is this intense self-antagonism. But the two cannot be brought together. I think what they're discovering is what Paul pictures in Romans chapter 7. The self is split against the self. Hope then is focused on the prospect of conformity to the unseen image of Christ. And where in the I or the ego there's a misrecognition of the mortal body, of the self. But in chapter 8, there is the presumption that the spirit will bring new life to the body. That is, there's the hope of resurrection. And the hope of resurrection reconciles this split between the body and the mind. So the subject of desire and the subject of hope, I believe, constitute our two alternatives. The subject of deception or of forbidden desire makes the law a kind of way, a means of achieving the self, of achieving life, of achieving being. But in the very process, it enacts a loss. We are lost and we continually enact and reinforce this loss in which the eye observes himself or his body in 723 and finds, Paul says, an alien force inducing evil works within me. I'm doing the very thing I do not want. I'm no longer the one doing it though, but this alien force, sin, which dwells within me. Mr. Hyde cannot be kept under control. He keeps going out at night and Dr. Jekyll cannot, you know, keep him in. The monster is animated by a force that is uncontrollable. Where desire arises through lack. (coughs) You know, what's missing? What's lacking? Well, ultimately, you're missing. Or life is missing. The ground of hope is, Paul says, life in the spirit, which has as its goal conformity in 829, conformity to the image of Christ. So his image is not an object of sight. And achieving his likeness then is this dynamic process, uh, Paul says, of walking in 8.4 as he did. Of setting the mind on the things of the spirit in 8.5. In 8.7 of active submission. And 8.25 of patience. Those are things that we learn. Those are things that we enact. Those are things that we will and do. Paul pictures it as the hope of resurrection in 8.11. And this then displaces that static orientation to death uh, in the acceptance. There is a kind of acceptance of our mortality, of our body. So we could describe 7 as a death-denying kind of lie and chapter 8 as a death acceptance with the hope of the resurrection. But if the spirit of him, Paul says in 8.12, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And so the Spirit is already indwelling and this resurrection Spirit is the one that now animates you. Sin no longer animates you. Sin is no longer the one controlling you. Life in the flesh must be lived according to the principle of the law of the flesh. This is the law that says, you know, in Genesis 3, 4, you won't die. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. This is the law that says, according to Jesus, I will save my life. But in attempting to save it, I lose it. In embracing the lie, you will not die, you die. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As Jesus states it, if you lose your life for my sake in the kingdoms, you will save it. In crucifying the I, the ego, this false construct, or by dying or losing this sort of life, a real life can be instituted. A life, Paul describes, without slavery to fear or the punishing effects of the law or the punishing conscience. For through the spirit of sonship, a direct relation to God has been opened. We can cry, Abba, Father. Put simply, the one is the subject of life and the other is the subject of death. And so the impetus of the sinful drive toward death is ironically to secure ourselves, to establish ourselves, to save the self. And this perverse sort of salvation that would save the self is in fact what is being saved is kind of the self as an isolated object, a thing, and uh, uh, you know, uh, as if we are a material thing to be saved. And as an object, there is a refusal of change, of dynamics, of growth. So chapter 7 is all static. Chapter 8 is all dynamic. Chapter 7 is controlled by desire. Chapter 8 is controlled by hope. Hope accommodates. You know, hope is future, bringing the future into the present and growing accordingly. Um... Hope accommodates our living personhood. Hope, in Jürgen Moltmann's description, and I believe no one has written more on Christian hope than than Moltmann. Uh, Hope, he says, has the chance of a meaningful existence only when reality itself is in a state of historic flux and when historic reality has room for open possibilities ahead. Change, history, time, maturity. That's good news. That's not bad news. Turning 94 is good news. That's not bad news. Growing and becoming fully who we were meant to be. That is the life of hope that as we mature, as we engage the change of this world, uh, that we are attaining then the hope that is held out to us. Uh, Paul's description is that the the suffering, the vicissitudes of this world uh, are no longer definitive. They are no longer determinative. 
He says the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. As neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. So hope embraces the dynamics of change as it is focused on a certain future fulfillment of the promise of God which cannot be obtained within the framework of our present possibilities but have to embrace both future and past. So it becomes possible to experience the dynamic change of movement and time not as a threat And I believe that's often the way that we picture change of growing old uh, as a kind of threat to to who we are. But it's a means of fulfilling hope. This hope directly in 820 counters the lie or futility of sin. The the word here uh, in the futility is the same idea of the lie that we met in 125. Paul says the world has been subjected to frustration in hope. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, that is the futility there, similar word, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, to futility, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the hopeless futility of chapter 7, I believe the hopeless futility of Genesis 3, you know, described there by God as the kind of curse that is brought upon humankind and creation itself, is undone in Christ. And that's the picture in Romans 8.20. That the creation itself awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is groaning as in travail, in hope of a child, in hope of a new birth. So the original lie of the serpent uh, brings about a cosmic futility, and all of humanity has been affected. But now freedom from the lie, or the powers of sin, death, and corruption, is being realized. So as Moltmann describes it, the law of sin and death is an imminent law. It's a law that immediate surrounds us. And there is no hope. But the law of life and the spirit subsumes this futility. It takes account of it and moves beyond it. And even gives it meaning and purpose. So the conclusion... The life Paul describes in chapter 7 or the life in the ego is not life at all, but it's a kind of living death. And that's what we have outside of Christ. Is it a life which in fact prevents entry into true life? It prevents true relationship. It prevents true communion. It prevents true agape love. Uh, It is not subject to growth and change. It's a kind of pursuit of a desire, of an object. Uh, It's a life that is agonistic as we struggle against ourselves. It's a living death, Paul says. In contrast, life in the spirit is one in which all of creation is undergoing redemption, rebirth. There is a groaning, as in the pains of childbirth in 822. 
We hope for what we do not yet have. But we hope because we will attain it. There is not an abolition of the present world. In other words, it's not, oh, we're hoping to depart, but rather this hope infiltrates and gives us a different understanding of creation itself. With the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Paul says, the purpose of creation suffering will appear, have appeared, and hope's longing is fulfilled. Let's sing again.